You're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain. With none of the gimmicks. With your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. As you'll know, I'm, I'm, I'm very good at um, being general and sitting on the fence. I don't really put my opinions out there for tender. Normally, that, that's sarcasm in case anyone didn't come across <laughs> that. Welcome to the Propane Fitness Podcast. So we're here with Mark Keyes, who is the strength and conditioning coach for Edinburgh Rugby, head coach of Edinburgh Barbell, and the founder of Online Strength Coach and Cast Iron Strength. So you may have seen some of his articles that we've uh, we've reposted on our website, uh, propanefitness.com. So um, last week, which was the... Tw- what's 28 minus 7? Tw- the, 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 <laughs> the so we do the intro, so I can make an absolute fucking shambles of it, and then have to redo it again. One, one error, the rest of it was fine. I'm going to I'm gonna use this. Now so, we, we need to do it again, because Mark said, read on the, read in the intro. Uh, or we're dear. just leaving it in. Fine, we, we could. Let's, let's roll with it. Fine. Just roll with it, it's fine. Yeah. I mean, I was happy the, with the, first the, the best gems are flawed, and this is by a spectacular gem by that qualification yeah so I've, I've been writing a lot online since about 2006 uh started the cast iron strength website in 2013 when i was self-employed for all of uh, six months that was before i started the job with edinburgh it's basically was part-time this year sport scottish institute of sport and then uh, started working with edinburgh rugby in the pre-season of 2013 been with them since since then i've started an online coaching business called online strength coach uh, and i've also started a weightlifting and powerlifting club based out of Edinburgh initially, hoping to grow it out uh, to other cities as we go on. But basically the, the, the idea is that we provide expert coaching, expert programming to people within the city, so within the city of Edinburgh. We have, I believe strongly, the best coaches within the area. Uh, we try to have the best facilities within the area and we've got up to about 37 lifters and uh, we are now in our third month of operation. So that's going fairly well. Um, and try to get a, get into more of the training of people's spaces towards the training of athletes because that's generally where my passion lies, strength and strength sports, less so within the actual um, strength and condition. Although I do enjoy it um, and it's good for exposure, my uh, passion definitely lies within strength sports. Right. Well, first and foremost, if I, if I fuck up a lifter, there's not really that many implications where if I put someone in the spasm who's a professional athlete, there tends to be some implications. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you can tend to be a bit lot more. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot more freedom for me as a coach working with lifters, because you're you're essentially everything. You're the lead technical coach. You're the you're the SSC coach. You're everything rolled into one when you work with lifters. Whereas, suppose when you work within professional team setup, you're one of the cogs in the machine. Uh, and depending on the time and the year, the importance of that cog varies. Um, so kind of when we're in season so rugby as you'll know if you're not aware of it is a contact sport where we compete pretty much every weekend we compete in two different competitions we compete in the European Challenge Cup which is a Pan's European League and we compete in the Pro 12 which is the, one of the three main professional uh, leagues within Europe so the Pro 12 encompasses Ireland, Scotland Wales, Italy and then you have the Aviva Premiership within England, and you have the Pro Fort, Top 14 within France. Uh, and we're kind of where we sit is, we basically, our guys go into a car crash every weekend, so what we can do with them from a training <laughs> perspective becomes very limited. So our only real main input within the program comes through the preseason, and then it comes, we get little snippets with players who kind of dip in and out. So they maybe get rested for two or three weeks so we get a little period where we can do some more meaningful work with them. Or the injured guys, probably, that's where my main role lies within the season is working with the injured players and bringing them back to fitness as quickly as possible. So what, what would be an absolute ideal client for you? Like if, if sounds like rugby has its irritations, sounds like you'd rather work in, in like general pop because you don't, well, I suppose they're not often in car crashes. Or at least not on a not on a weekly hopefully basis. Hopefully not. Yeah. yeah. So, so hopefully if, not. If they are, crash they're... test, don't we? Uh, yeah. In which case, I would also present his own uh, limitations. <laughs> I would imagine. Um, and and if they're in a car crash, like their the first thought on Monday morning is probably not like, "What am I doing in the gym today?" It's like I'll be like, "What? Why did you, why are you lift training?" <laughs> I was in a car crash. Well, how how dedicated are you? I mean, really, I sacrifice time. Are you prepared to sacrifice? Do you have a bike? So who's who's your ideal client? Like if you could design them, 
what would that like what sort of experience so if any test tube client yeah um you you get to go from from the genetic level upwards and and grow your own client who would that be well first of all they'd have an obscene bank balance next they would have a complete and utter disregard for their own financial management third so they'd be quite time. malleable to uh, paying me upwards of ten thousand pounds per week for online coaching and then everything from there we can discuss <laughs> i should have seen that coming shouldn't i okay so that's how mark would genetically design a, a, a client <laughs> to have beyond that ten thousand pounds so um, not in a car crash and, and my thing i, I had this like on a less funny level we had a discussion with a colleague of mine who now is working with british swimming and just went out to uh, pretty much led the snc for team gb out there uh in rio um, he, he he was of the opinion that uh, your mark as being a great SNC coach or your mark of being an SNC coach was a level of athlete you worked with. And my take on it was it wasn't down to the level of athlete you work with. To me, it doesn't really matter the level of the person I work with. I could be less of a fuck. It's more the impact that I can have on them uh, when I'm working with them, whether that positive or negative, probably positive, hopefully. But um, it's more your ability to affect change of the people you work with uh, is what I determine uh, as success as a coach. I, I, I work with loads of people. I work with uh, masters lifters who are weak as fuck. I lift with um, kind of people who are beginners, novices. I work with some like obscenely strong natural lifters. I've worked with some obscenely strong non-natural lifters. Um, I work with professional athletes. I've worked with Olympic athletes. I've worked with Commonwealth Games athletes. To me, the the level of athlete does not matter. It's more, I just really enjoy the process of coaching and helping people along whatever the task is. For me, where strength sports are more um, attractive to me is that I have 100% control over the program. And, well, that's, that's a hugely <laughs> a great factor. One of my main problems with working within professional sport, working with sport in general is, as I said, mentioned before, we're a cog in the wheel, um, whereas I, I just want to be the one cog. That's kind of, as long as I'm controlling the program, I'm happy, basically, because I'm a control freak. So I totally agree <laughs> about, like, the fact that if you're training someone, even if they're a very talented athlete, but they're not engaged and you're not able to affect any kind of change in them, it's a lot less satisfying than somebody who is willing to put in the work, even if they're pretty uh, disadvantaged or, well, pretty rubbish at uh, what they're doing. I was trying to use a PC term there. That's an interesting topic. If, if an athlete is not engaged with the program or if your client's not engaged with the program or your nutrition client's not engaged with the program, why aren't they engaged with the program would be the question that I would ask there. And I, I, I don't have it. I've not, what engagement with people I work with has never been a problem with me um, because I, I'm quite malleable when I work with someone. Um, like people have different goals, they have different ways of interacting with people. And the, the actual soft skills of coaching, I think, is probably the most important thing that doesn't get discussed within like the people who are hugely into the technical side of it. Um, what what's the optimal sets and reps? What's the volume intensity? What's this kind of programming? What's this kind of diet? What's this kind of supplementation? But no one really talks about how best to interact with people, how to get the best out of a situation, how to get the best of a person, um, how you can better understand someone's psychology. These things to me are far more important um, than any of those other factors that within um, this area, people tend to be social retards, so they find it difficult to be good at these things. I think that's a, that's a huge problem within, or not a huge problem, but a huge uh, gaping hole within most people's arsenal is they don't really look at how they interact with people or how they talk to people or how they feedback to people and what feedback that has on them. <clears throat> so for me, it's not necessarily that the athlete isn't engaged with the program. The athlete isn't engaged with the program for a reason. So if we look at within professional sport or within high-level sport, you deal with highly motivated, um, highly competitive people. So getting them to engage with something isn't difficult. What you, what is difficult, though, is making it speak to them. So as an SEC coach, you might be on the camp that you think that heavy squats are a must within a program. But athletes are very, um, they're pragmatists at the end of the day. They don't, see a, they don't see a benefit to it. 
So you'll see within strength training for sport, you'll see a huge benefit for the first year, for the first two years, after which you reach like a level of general development or level of GPP where as you get better GPP, you don't necessarily see the, the benefit anymore. Um, we've seen it myself within the professional sports setting. We tend to get guys who are like the strong, the strong. The, the way I look at it within with professional rugby, if if a guy wasn't in front of me, he he would be strong enough already if he's in front of me, because by definition he's signed a professional contract to play in a professional club, so he's obviously strong enough to be here. He's obviously powerful enough. He's obviously fast enough. He's obviously fit enough or else they wouldn't be paying him money to do the job that they want him to do. So for me, if everyone's like a case study, so it becomes a difficult thing, a difficult philosophy to uh, put into practice when you're, we have a team of three SEC coaches who deal with a squad of 46 athletes. It becomes very difficult to enact that kind of everyone's a case study um, because it, it, it goes down to logistics. We have about two, three hours of contact time with, 90% of the squad, so it becomes very difficult to enact, enact that. So I think it's um, kind of the secret to be a good good SEC coach within that environment is uh, like it's logistics, and then it's within the remit of those logistics. How do you pick up the guys who fall through the cracks? So guys who maybe don't get on with the traditional SEC philosophy that we push within the UK, which is based off force velocity curve mainly, we we believe in heavy loading of ver- in vertical planes, horizontal planes, because we're trying to create better force um, capacity or better overall force characteristics. And then we put that into more specific contexts when we go down and we do like heavy ballistics, like push presses, power cleans, lighter ballistic plyometric movements. And eventually within probably the only thing that we do that's more specific per se, or 100% sports specific is sprinting linearly or, or a fast change of direction. But these are, these are like, um, this is like down the chain of transfer. So within a lot of these contexts, um, like you, you might get, uh, we and you do get and have got um, professional athletes who maybe aren't engaged with, with the program as is. So then, what's wrong with our program? What what's what are we not speaking to this guy with? Um, what's he feeling needs more of, or or how can we interact with them better? And then it becomes uh, those kind of outliers within that because the vast majority of guys are pretty happy with what we do in the physical preparation um, of the team. You maybe get five to ten guys who require something a bit different, or maybe need a bit more conversation, or and um, maybe they tick a little bit differently. But it, then it becomes how do you stop those players or stop those athletes or stop those clients becoming detractors because if someone's a detractor within your program or someone's a detractor detractor within your client base then they, they can be incredibly harmful and um, on the whole so especially within a, a team sport environment if you have two or three guys who are completely adamant that Keezy's a fuckwit and the stuff that he's doing is causing everyone to get injured or get sore backs then that guy can be very very hurtful to the buy-in to your program so i think that's where a lot of coaches are shit and they don't they don't they're not malleable it's like my way or the highway sort of thing so i've had i've had interactions with a couple of um really good uh southern hemisphere conditioners first johan pastorius and then uh, ashley jones who have helped to kind of take my oh, i've got a very also good a very well developed um opinion or very well read or whatever in certain uh, areas and I'm quite opinionated and driven, but these guys have helped me see more of the kind of grayer, the nuance side, or how quite a lot of stuff we're doing might not actually be the best thing that we can be doing with these guys. Although it might be the best thing from a from a from a scientific point of view, or from a best technical practice point of view, in situation or in context, it could actually be a fucking stupid idea, and we could be actually harming these guys' performance on the pitch by trying to make them better lifters or make them better straight line sprinting or this or that. So I think what I would push uh, towards that is, or the question of what do you do with someone's not engaged? Well, maybe look at you first. What, what, what are they not engaging with? How are you not engaging with them as a coach or as an online trainer or as a personal trainer or even just as like a class instructor? What is it about you or what is it about your program or what is it about your information that is not engaging the client? Uh, uh, look look home, home first before you start looking for 
um, external problems or external or what's wrong with them. So it's it's really good to hear that um, that perspective come from you because you've got a, a very much a powerlifting background in terms of your own training and you're not allowing that to kind of seep into um, seeing everything as as a nail and trying to address everything with you know the, as you said everything in a kind of vertical plane strength training style approach and also you said some of your rugby athletes tend to be um, battered a lot of the time and you said I want to make sure that they can still make meaningful progress uh, without necessarily heavy spinal loading so how would you go about doing that with someone that's all you got (laughs) (laughs) so this is mainly in reference to the uh, the article that you posted for us this week about the off season for a powerlifter and saying how. Um... Yeah, so if we just or just to jump off quickly, if we take this within a rugby context, we can't negate the strength, power, and speed stimulus that the sport has. So obviously within a scrum, it can be up to twenty to thirty seconds of isometric or yielding strength or or even concentric strength being given out with and within the centre of that scrum, there's like one point six tons of weight going through it. So we we can't negate that as a strength stimulus for a front five player or not for a front five player we can't negate the neural stimulus that someone will get from running hitting contact tackling clearing rocks there's a lot of things within uh rugby that are on the the, the force velocity curve and have a training stimulus so for instance um one of my most seen seen uh senior players had oh so we basically we have we did a block like a three week block where based off the gym aware we didn't do any heavy squatting kind of the heavy squat blows we went up to was about eighty maybe eighty five percent so for him he's got a he had a two fifty max so for him the heaviest he squatted was about two ten for those three weeks and then the next three weeks we went into like a half squat phase so like a bit more of a specific phase if you will uh doing a lot more parlor work sled work uh, and the, the only heavy loading that we did was mandated that it was through like a small joint range so a well above parallel probably like quarter squat sort of depth and um, he was rested last week and and because he was getting rested he was in my thursday group so my thursday groups the guys who are fringe players or kind of our younger players who are developing. So within that scenario, we'll look like, well, we have a we have a novel opportunity here just to try a max and see how you are. So after bearing in mind he hasn't done a full squat or with anything over two ten kilos in the last six weeks, he squatted two sixty and he absolutely smoked it. So for that, like this guy, this guy's a bolt on for the team, so he gets a minimum of sixty minutes every week. And um, there's the scrum training. There's all these training stimulus um, to these athletes in the week that. We, you can't negate you can't actually and you can see from that kind of example there there's adaptation going on that you that you don't maybe necessarily um appreciate if you don't have a holistic look so if i only look at my strength and power program as the only aspect of the program that's happening within that context he should have detrained he should he should be down like he should be lifting his max maybe but it should be hard or he should, probably should be down because there's no specific adaptation towards one arm lifting there and um, certainly not within a full squat context so with, with a player who maybe has spinal issues so with a couple of players who have um, a couple of stress fractures with their spine uh, we can't load them in extension but what we can do is we can do single leg work we can load them uh, on a leg press and a belt squat we can we can we can challenge the muscle in different ways we challenge it with stimulus is not going to get in the pitch so we can utilize unilateral movement to tempo so we can induce time under tension with that bearing in mind that we're not going to get the force the force um adaptation that we want but we might get some cross-sectional area so we increase the size of the muscle within it and jumping from causation to causation something i don't like to do but if we can induce hypertrophy in that scenario then there are elements of the sport that are going to lend themselves to maximum force production and there's certainly elements within the sport that lend themselves to uh, rate of force production and your inter and intramuscular activities within the sport there's a huge amount of different training modalities that are happening within the scenario so although we can't affect what we might not want to affect which is maximum force production within the gym we can maybe create an environment for that lifter or for that player, sorry, uh, probably through my own biases there. Freudian uh, we, 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 we can create an environment for that 
player where we can maybe help them to get a better adaptation from the sport in the areas that we can't affect for the gym because of certain issues. And some guy, uh, one player, I've got one player and one of our backs who's our strongest back who doesn't, doesn't really lift weights. So he was of the opinion, he's of the opinion that if he lifts lower body heavy, he gets injured. So with that athlete though, he's so, so he's genetic, um, he's so genetically superior to everybody else that he maybe doesn't need that um, stimulus. So one of the things we can do a lot for rugby players, what a lot of, of SSC can do for rugby players, we can create a more positive hormonal environment for them to adapt to the sport like we talked about before. So from lifting weights, we increase their testosterone levels, increase their growth hormone levels, um, we increase their strength, cross-sectional area of the muscle, things that allow them to better adapt to the sport or the sports training. But for guys like this who he walks around looking like an Adonis and he lifts like he lifts upper body once a week and he's like the most most ridiculously rigged out guy you've ever seen he's absolutely fucking massive and when you see him on the pitch he's like one of our most physical players like he smashes guys he fucking smashes breakdowns carries hard breaks tackles and he's white as well which is the most scary thing of all of it <laughs> uh, but we see this so you see guys who have that who naturally have that um endocrinology that allows them to just play rugby and be as big and be as strong and be as fast as is required just from playing the game. So within that player there's maybe other elements we can look at. So what's his fitness like? What's his speed like? What can we do? But then this guy this guy's like this guy's the most frustrating guy to work with an SC coach because he's fit as fuck, he's quick as fuck, he's strong as fuck. Um but basically what we have to do with them is just keep them on the pitch. Uh, so it becomes more more of how we can add value rather than taking away. So like with his lower body program, what are like what's so like some maybe some prehab things we can do or what's some heavy loading. So he likes leg press, so we can get some heavy quad loading at least through that. And he, he, he took up to he took on to trap our deadlift, so I thought I had a win there and then he went he had a back spasm from playing and then all of a sudden that's out the window but it just becomes more about um how can you work with these guys or how can you and i think a lot of it is you have to accept that i really like people lifting heavy stuff but maybe it's not necessarily the best thing for that player or the best thing for that sport necessarily and i think one of my biggest mistakes as a strength conditioning coach when i was given remit to kind of oversee the whole program was with um scottish basketball i i I had a couple of girls. I was I was over I was the overseer for the entire country, but um, like I had a couple of girls who were working on me specifically, and I was just like pushing their part of the numbers up basically. So I was working on the clean, working on the squat, um, and for one girl it was pretty much exactly what she needed. She was like eighteen, um, just kind of coming into her own as a player, and her lower body power, her relative loss per kilo and everything skyrocketed. She ended up playing for GB. She ended up getting a scholarship to America. But another girl, um, she ended up having an ACL injury. Now, it was in the game. It's not to say that the strike training had any effect on that, but she actually was carrying it for two to three weeks. And they only actually figured out that she had an ACL injury when they put her under and the, the knee went so lax and no lateral stability in her knee. But that was just being held together um, by the muscles there that were developed so strongly within that that's now that's not to say that's right or wrong but it's to say that I, i'm just like obviously put their training what i didn't look at though was the the adaptation i was taking away from them so they're they're training like two or three times a week they have two or three games a week and quite a lot of these athletes will play for university and club and i'm like i'm wrapping their strength training up and up and up and up week in week out week in week out now what what recovery is that taking away from their sports training what um what effect? What, I'm obviously having a deleterious effect on some aspects of their training. Um, we had a CPD talk with a guy called Martin Bissinger of Hammer Media um, last week. One of the incredibly interesting things that you said that I think a lot of SC coaches don't really think about it is um, if you induce like a high neurological uh, stress, so like strength training, velocity training, these are all high uh, stressors of neurological components of the body, of, of physiology. What, what effect does that have on their skill training later? So if it's a waste of person in the day and I smash the fuck out of somebody, 
um, and they go on to do passing drills or contact drills or any kind of um, drill that requires uh, coordination. I've 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 I've, I've fucked that training session up basically, and I've, I've probably fucked up the training session for the next day because it it changes the time. Like coordination is very specific, so if you're walking in having done three sets of ten at your ten RM squat and you puke three times, <laughs> it's quite it's quite probable that your coordination, your timing is going to be different. So honestly, your your body will adapt to that, but maybe you're not learning the the correct coordination, the correct timing of the skills. So I thought that was incredibly um, interesting. Definitely food for thought. Uh, but yeah, that so like within that's one thing that I've learned within um, as I've developed is that you need everything contextual is everything. So you need to put everything into context. So just because I've ramped up, so in my first year with Edinburgh, I took the average uh, squat from one five seven up to one eighty seven. So you might think on that, oh, he's done a fantastic job. He's made everyone stronger. But has he? <laughs> it would be the the next thing. Um, and actually, last preseason, I put, up, I kind of, I ran the preseason program. I put up much less of an emphasis in the gym. The guys, the guys still got stronger, but they didn't get markedly stronger. And we put more of an emphasis on allowing them to get the most out of their field training or get the most out of the fitness training. And uh, for me, that that that's that's been the best period of training that we've had as a as a group. Um, but yeah, so. Just for anyone listening that's that's heard Mark um, refer to a couple of these mechanisms and getting stronger and um, the neuromuscular efficiencies and all these things, Mark actually covers these um, in detail in a fantastic lecture on YouTube called something like "Why Do I Get Strong for Dummies?" or what? What you can remember what it's called, Mark? Yeah, it was. It's like one of the go onto my um, YouTube channel, <clears throat> Speed Power, Speed Power Fitness. Um, it's like the first. If it's the first time you've been to it, it's the one that it'll, it'll pop up. It's called... Um, how do I get strong, well, I think. How do I get strong? The Peasant's Guide to Strength we'll, Gain or something we'll like that. Put a, we'll put a link in below the podcast so people can go watch. But yeah, that is that is a very good summary of, uh, of the mechanisms. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a few things we wanted to ask you, but I know we're, you're quite short on time. Um, but I suppose, like, leading in from that, the thing that I, I noticed that you, you're talking about how, <clears throat> like, a rugby player's programming is periodized quite a lot between pre-season and in-season. And the, the work that you're doing with them is completely different in those two phases. And the article that we shared on our website last week was about how powerlifting doesn't have anything like, you know, the standard powerlifting, raw, drug-free, doesn't have anything like an off-season because it's like I run up to a meet, I maybe have a week off, and then I'm straight back into spinal loading prep, straight away. prep number two. So, I mean, how I know that you obviously coach people who aren't rugby players. How, how do you apply that kind of thinking to a powerlifters program? So when it comes specifically to powerlifters or strength athletes in general, as you notice, as you mentioned, the one thing we're really bad as a sport or as people is organ organization in general. So how many powerlifters do you know that have an annual plan with all of their meets put into it? Not many. Do you know any? Not many. Um, so like from that perspective, if you can't plan on the macro level, so if you can't plan on the annual level, which is probably the, the longest period of planning that we'll go through within rugby, if we were dealing with if, if you were a powerlifter, say you were one of the Paralympic powerlifters and you had um, you had Olympic cycles, so there's a quad-annual cycle there where we will plan out in very general detail kind of the big picture period. So here's where we'll put in our our, our, um, our planned detraining phases. So every program should have a period of planned detraining to allow um, tissues recovery, to allow mental recovery, to allow... A recovery in general um, but recovery is not something uh, I get a lot, a lot of questions when I program for people where the deloads well my response to that is if a program is uh, put together correctly then deloading is not a term that we should really utilize because we're we're recovery if it, so you guys know about fitness fatigue I assume yeah so it's the the dual model of how super super compensation actually works. So when we so we have our performances, uh, the factor that's affected by these two things, fitness is how fit we are at the time. So um, what our capacity is, and then uh, fatigue is how tired we are. 
how these two interplay is basically what happens performance. So when we go into a taper or we go into a peak, what we do is we deliberately take fitness down and take uh, fatigue down at the same time, which actually leads to like a temporary increase in performance. So you've all felt that if you've done a properly structured um, taper or properly structured meet, taper or peak, that day of the meet, you feel awesome. And then for the three weeks after the meet, you feel like absolute dog shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's because basically what we do is we, we take the we take fit we take fatigue, we take fitness, and we 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 get rid of both of them to allow that 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 peak of fitness. It's not really peak of fitness; it's peak of performance because fitness is dropping off week in week out. So twenty one days is your typical, um, three weeks is the typical marker for the qualities that we're interested in. Uh, in powerlifting, which is power and strength, obviously we're interested in strength more than power. Um, that twenty-one day uh, melt in volume—that's what—that's what leads to that um, that 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 peak in performance. But what comes after a peak? There has to be a trough. So within so within powerlifting, what we'll do is we'll we peak. Some lifters will peak for every meet, so we pick out four or five meets. Where's the training though? Like we peak, we trough, we peak, we trough, we peak, we trough, but there's no determined period for increased capacity. So like a lot of lifters will take a meet, so they'll take like um, a national level meet or a regional level meet, they'll peak for it. Then if they qualify for nationals, they'll peak for that. Then if they qualify for an international comp or an R comp, they'll peak for that. But we're talking about once you peak, you're basically washing away um, six weeks of training effectively because one you have the meat taper which should be three weeks in length and then you have the back end of it when you're trying to build up a base level of fitness which is roughly about three weeks worth, we work three weeks worth of training and what a lift, all lifters will do there is they'll, they'll take a week, a week off so there's another week of decrease in fitness there's another week of detraining and then they don't take any time off during the week so like, over the year so they don't take a three or four week gap or like they make like they'll take a forced rest normally where they go on holiday and they can't find a gym and they freak out about it because they can't train for a week or maybe they go on a longer holiday and like you know what the personality types are like within lifting or within training they tend to really it's certainly people that are engaged with it and enjoy it it'll be a huge point of contention with them or a huge point of stress if they can't lift or they can't train or they can't follow the program and it becomes a huge issue Whereas what they should be doing really, and what every other sport on the planet does, they take a minimum of like three weeks just to allow detraining to occur. It's something that we actively want to do. We don't want to remain at peak fitness the entire year round. Because one, it's possible to remain at peak fitness the entire year round. And two, that's a state where injury is very, very uh, likely to happen. Especially within a limit sport like powerlifting. If we try and stay in a peak condition, so we're constantly stressing our tendons, we're constantly stressing our muscles um, to that level of stimulus week in, week out, you're 100% going to burn out or you're 100% going to get an overuse injury within a time frame. And a time frame might be a year, it might be two years, it might be three years, but you're guaranteed to have tissue failure within that scenario. It's not like it's a non-avoidable occurrence that's going to happen. Tendons um, respond to load in a much kind of lag time frame that, that do muscles. Muscles uh, recover within 48, 72 hours. Tendons do not. So you, the, the minimum thing you're going to get is going to be uh, a tendonopathy, which is like a best case scenario within this because other scenarios are tendon failure or ruptures, which are a lot more debilitating in their effect, as in you won't be able to walk possibly, <laughs> versus not being able to squat. Uh, I don't know. But like some people not being able to squat might be as bad as not being able to walk, but. <laughs> And so, like, we, we need these periods, and a lot of issues and a lot of injuries that people get within powerlifting just comes from their complete lack of periodization, their complete lack of planning, their le- complete lack of organization. Where they're just like, we need to be pushing the envelope week in, week out, week in, week out, week in, week out. I'm a back. <laughs> I think, as you uh, said as well, you know, it really matches with the personality type of the powerlifter. I think as pa- powerlifters tend to be the most kind of obsessive autistic spectrum kind of people that you know it's, it's all everything's planned out on a spreadsheet and and there's the there's the very much very much the sense of, what's that 
The spreadsheet only goes three or four weeks well, in the future. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then a, a missed workout is the end of the world. End of the world, yeah. So we, we've only got a few more minutes, Mark. So we wanted to ask you a little bit about um, basically how not to live. You can push it a little bit, guys, if you want. Okay. Uh, I, don't, I don't just want to nail that badly. Cool. So. Um, <laughs> You, you've written an article as well for us called How Not to Look Like a Child in a T-Shirt. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, how you would adapt training? If, was that a fart? Was that the chair? No. <laughs> Yusuf gives me the creaky chair and then blames me whenever there's a noise. So that he can... So you can see that farting away on the podcast. <laughs> it's it was all It was all very calculated. Quick um, fart blame, Johnny. <laughs> So yeah, um, it was called How Not to Look Like a Child in a T-Shirt. And I think a lot of people will also know you from the pressing template, which a lot of people have had a lot, had some great success with. Can you go over a little bit about how you would adapt things for someone wanting to gain size and still have the main lifts in their program? Okay, so the step number one of how not to look like a child in a T-Shirt is go through puberty. <laughs> so that's, that's the not most important <laughs> number step. Well, there are some genetic conditions that unfortunately make this an impossibility. Um, but yeah, so basically, I'm still it's, waiting it's for more of a, more of a topic. <laughs> it's more, it was more of like a general piece on how size gain or increasing cross-sectional area is quite easy, really. People make it a lot more complicated than it is. Basically, we have two factors that we need to have. We need to be in calorie surplus. So... Like in the article, I, I recommend that you take a food diary. And I, I need to give a shout out to my brother Rick, who did this for somebody. Um, I didn't give him uh, props in the article. It's from about four years ago, but you'll, you'll get it eventually. Uh, so he basically he made one of his colleagues keep a food diary. So he kept a food diary for a week, and then he said, double everything on that, and then eat it. And then he, he gained weight, surprisingly enough. Like, obviously, it was 100% muscle gain. I mean, I don't think I know many work. people that if you doubled their food intake, they would stay lean. Stay as lean as they are now. 100% stay as lean as and just gain 100% lean mass. That, that's that's how science works. And then, especially if you, you do the 20 rep squat program on top of that, then what you'll do is you'll gain about 30 pounds of lean mass in three months, as Ripple Toad has shown us on many occasions. <laughs> I've done that program. And it also was, hate your life. Yeah, really unpleasant. Yeah. With all the milk Stairs as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So calorie surplus and then what's step number three? Step number two. Step number two. Step number one. Is oh, it, so it, step it, two is 20 rep squats. No, step, <laughs> step number one is puberty. Step number two is calorie surplus. <laughs> step number three. <laughs> yeah, step one, puberty. Fine. <laughs> yeah. Step two, calorie surplus. And then they basically... Hypertrophy is pretty much being shown as a is it is a volume response. It's not an intensity response. It's not a it's not a muscle velocity response. It's it is a volume response inherently. And that is what the increasing cross sectional area is. You can maybe like this been shown that volume loads of thirty as long as the volume load is the same. If it's a thirty percent, sixty percent, eighty percent, ninety percent. The, the outcome of increasing cross-sectional area is the same. So we, we can say with pretty much, I can say within training, I can say with certainty, I would say with certainty that your level of volume load is directly correlated to your increased cross-sectional area. That's it. So we need to lift with increasing volume week in, week out. So whether that means that we lift more reps or we lift more, um, we lift more, weight within a certain within a certain sets of rep guidelines so we don't really want to be doing 10 sets of three right when we can just do three sets of 10 and get the same volume load if not a greater volume load within three set structure instead of a 10 rep structure now that and um that's been shown as again those sets of reps put against each other they both have pretty much the same uh both have pretty much the same cross-sectional error response but one's more time efficient and allows for more variety. So another thing that uh, a lot of people don't talk about or a lot of people maybe skip past is exercise variety is also an incredibly important aspect to a bodybuilding program. And people say that we can't isolate muscles or we can't isolate partial muscles, but not only is that being shown within the literature to not be true, there, there is preferential recruitment of muscle fibers depending on the line of pull within the muscle. 
but also anecdotally, if you look at bodybuilders, what do they what do they do? They do a huge variety of movements. They'll do flies in different planes. They'll press in different planes. They'll pull in different planes. And people who are training towards a goal or towards a performance goal, they tend to happen upon normally by happenstance what works. So what we can say within training for hypertrophy, or for the only goal of the of the program is hypertrophy, then we need uh, one, one. We need the hormonal environment to produce hypertrophy. So if that's steroids or if that's going through puberty or being a man, then that's the, that we need that environment. The next thing we need is we need uh, a nutritional environment that's going to allow that. So the nutritional environment that's going to allow that is a calorie surplus, uh, a sufficient amount of protein. And those are the two things we need to meet. Um, the fat and carbohydrate makeup of that diet is irrelevant. And then we need to increase volume volume load from week to week and then the next thing we need to do is we need to produce um, enough exercise variety uh, to one hypertrophy the body as a whole or the, the parts of the body that we want and also enough variety within a muscle group to to best um, for instance within a, a, a close stance squat we might get more involvement of VMO or definitely in a single leg squat we'll definitely get more involvement in VMO Whereas in a bilateral squat, it might, it's going to shift out the VL and our, our groups that are, are more partially. So when we, our chest is the easy one. If we do a flat bench press, the, the line of pull and the fiber through the chest is going to be through the middle specifically and you'll get a trickle down effect. So if within the, within the muscle belly, if across the middle of the chest they're producing the most force relative, there's a trickle down effect of that. So they will they will get the most amount of hypertrophic response. And then as we move away from that locally within the muscle, they'll get less and less hypertrophic response. So within that scenario, we need to look at like incline presses, decline presses, flies of different natures, inclined flies. And a, a good way of um, producing more volume in the program is what bodybuilders do. They'll start off with the barbell. Then they'll move on to the dumbbell, then they'll move on to the machine, and then they'll move on to cables. As they become more fucked through the session, they will go to easier implements that allow them to still get more work and get more volume. And um, so I think I think that's an important point because <clears throat> often, um, again, people from um, from both powerlifting background and also the, the the general fitness industry likes to say like, oh, you know, you only need to squat, you should only bench press, and so on. And actually, as you said, it's a straw man thing to say oh, well, you can't isolate a certain muscle or a certain head. It's not, there's no one out there actually looking to isolate the VMO. It's uh, it's more about, as you said, preferential recruitment and being able to then target the whole lot by... There probably is variety. someone looking to isolate <laughs> Someone being like, I really want Just my, my like subclavicular <laughs> muscle to, yeah. Only. <laughs> Nothing else. Nothing else. <coughs> I really, really like some massive glute mead. I'm not interested in the rest of the glute, just a huge glute mead, please. I'd like I want a bridge on my ass that just sits out. <laughs> just so you can rest things on it or like store your drinks. Yeah. yeah. I, I just mainly so I can say to the next physio that questions my glute recruitment, but that's not in fact the case. Yeah. Everything else is weak, not my glute mead. I don't think I've been a single physio where I like, I go with any problem, like, oh, my neck's a bit sore. I'm like, mm, I think it might be a glute recruitment. And then Just I have always do all glutes. kinds of like banded drills and. Hey, you, you, you could go in with a broken neck. The first thing you would get would be <laughs> clamshells. <laughs> so true. Do you think that's because everybody doesn't recruit their glutes? No, by nature we have to recruit them to move. So it, it's it's a complete nonsensical term. The fact that I've completed a squat means I've recruited my glutes to some extent. Yeah, it's biomechanically impossible for hip extension without using the glutes. So no, that that was always my issue. Like when my if my I've added like twenty kilos to my deadlift, but you're telling me I'm not recruiting my glutes. Like I, f- I find that hard to believe. Like it might maybe, but hard to believe. You just you just deadlift. No no no. You you managed to increase your maximal force output or your maximal force capacity and hip extension without using the primary hip extensor. <laughs> That's what's happened. It's just all chest. You, you just you just got stronger in your quadriceps, your hamstrings, in my That's spirit. Or you just cheated more by using more sumo. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, we know a guy too who, much sumo. Who, who deadlifts, you know, mid mid three hundreds, and he's got weak traps, glutes, hamstrings, calves. He just pulls quite hard, according to that's him. Nick. That's Nick. Yeah. He, he he's just got absolutely no ability to extend his spine. <laughs> he just loves, loves flexion, and then when he has to when he has to extend it, he just happens to be mid thigh with three hundred fifty kilos. <laughs> Speaking of three hundred fifty kilos, what do you what do you lift at the moment, Mark? I don't even lift. You don't lift at all. No. Despite um, reaching T five. <laughs> <laughs> so I squatted two ninety uh, kilos, and obviously not two ninety pounds, or else you probably wouldn't be talking to me. <laughs> uh, two ninety kilos recently in the gym. Uh, bench two hundred twenty two kilos recently in the gym. And failed 310 kilo deadlift because I suck at deadlift. Don't hate deadlift. You and, you uh, and well, I still, my best deadlift is 300. You and I are still technically in a race of 700 pounds. Technically. Technically. A race that I'm losing by like one kilo on my not. Well, what have you deadlifted? 300. 300. 0.5 of a kilo. 0.5 <laughs> of a kilo. 500 pounds ahead. Well, it all matters as long as it's on calibrated plates. But, of course. Um, so, I mean, that, that bench press. I like those only, please. <laughs> that bench press is absolutely insane like obviously the squat's very very big as well but the uh, I would imagine the bench press would stand out in most most competitions um, at IPF level like what when you competed recently right? yeah uh, last time I competed was the Scottish Classic in March June June how did that go? Uh, it went okay I fucked up the squat I wanted to do 290 squat but uh, my second attempt was 275 and I didn't treat it. I just thought it was like a warm up and then it appears out that 275 is quite heavy if you don't take it seriously. Really yeah. it, it, it's actually a reasonably heavy weight. Um, <laughs> so then I, then I had to take it again, psyched up and smashed it. So I, I probably would have scored a 290 in that meet if I actually treated the, the weight with the respect it deserved. Bench 207 with a, an hour two to two and a half, five kilos left in the tank. Uh, deadlift of 300 probably with another 10 kilos left in the tank on the lift. Um, so the plan was to uh, going forward for British was to squat 300, bench 215, and deadlift 310. But then I, I registered late, so the plan plan has changed. What weight class would that be in? Uh, that'd be in the 120s. 120s, cool. So you're thinking yeah. of competing again? Go back to the British next year, or to yeah, the British next 100%. year? Yeah, um, And I, I, I no. So the the original plan was to bulk the 120. Total in the mid 800s and then cut down to uh, give Screamer a run. And then Screamer's now totaled 861. So yeah. the, the the goal is possibly just to lift at 120 and maybe to see, take a rattle at Tony Cliff. Because I reckon there's more chance of me doing 900 in this weight class than there is of me doing like anywhere near 860 to 105. Is that what Tony just totaled 900 at the Arnold, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So Tony, Tony seems um, not static, but he seems like his best, I think his best total is like 910. Um, but he's kind of hovering around that 900 kilo mark, and I'm 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 pretty confident that I can, I can I can get to 900 in the 120s way before I don't think it's biomechanically biomechanically possible for me to total um, 850 860 at 105. It's just it's unbelievable. unbelievable. It is ridiculous. Yeah. So that's he's just taken world record, hasn't he? In yeah. 105. It's, so I think what everyone's waiting to see is what um, what Bryce Lewis does. At the U.S. Nationals, which will be exciting to see. You can't take the world records though without me, though, can you not? No, it's, uh, no, I can't. But like, just theoretically, to see whether he's got sort of got numbers greater than greater than Manuel. But it's funny because they're both like the same height, like very similar. Fucking manless man. <laughs> manless ruin the sport. Ruin <laughs> <laughs> Like to be one hundred five at that height, he's got to be a thick, thick man. I think Mark made my life when he said I was too tall for the 74s. <laughs> I've never been too tall for anything. <laughs> You're definitely too tall for the 74s, though. Well, the first, I think the first thing you told me, Mark, was that I was too tall for 93s. You're 100% too tall for the 93s. <laughs> so how how you explain... Well, I think I know what you're going to say. But that Christoph Wisbicki, or Chris, we call him Christoph Where's My Pen. We're, I've misplaced my biscuit. I <laughs> think it's over here. But <laughs> how would you explain him being... Same height, same weight, but having like 200 kilos on my total. Because he can pull 370. Right. And he can't. <laughs> and squat, and, squat and, and he can also bench. Bench like 200. Squat yeah. 290. Yeah. yeah. But he's not too tall for 93s. 
He's he's got a he's got a more favorable hormonal environment than you do. <laughs> there it is. He's been through. And, and I dare say he's probably carrying a fair bit more lean mass than you are. Yeah, uh, yeah. At, at, at that height, I would I would imagine probably double judging <laughs> judging from his photos, which is unbelievable. But yeah, so move up move up a weight class. I think are we are we the same height? There there about. Um, I think I'm taller. Okay, I, but I'm less of a man. I think. Oh, I think, I, th- I think we're going to be manless in 2019, though. I think the way the heights are going. So one one twenty. Here I come. You, wow. Okay. <laughs> so we've both got to go up at least two. Well, you you should. You you get the ninety threes. Well, I should go one hundred five. Why not? One hundred five. <laughs> Just. Well, what, what what height are you? Five eight. Um, Johnny's six, six one. one. Yeah, so Johnny, you're one hundred seventy one point eight. It's not a little bit. <laughs> um, it's not what. <laughs> Uh, it's not an open. <laughs> and you said, if you want to say, it should be like a net 105. <laughs> see, we, we see people in PF that should be two categories below what they're at uh, mm. just because of their, their body composition. How do you feel about um, fat as, <laughs> in, in powerlifting? Like, do, do you think it's an ex- Do you think there's any excuse to be um, fat? I think you basically? need to yeah, be an open. You should 100% be fat. You should 100% be fat. So how, yeah, how, if you're not fat as an open, then you're on gear. As an open, yeah. So, so in in any any weight restricted category, I think what we mean is like people who are fairly new to the sport who are like trying to fill out. People one of who are new to the sport shouldn't worry about weight category because there's no need to. They should just rock up, stand on skills, and lift. And just there's, there's absolutely no need for them to be um, worrying about weight category. When, when we're talking about um, obviously fat, like fat doesn't move weight directly. It it, it doesn't the squat though gloriously. <laughs> there, there is no wrong way to push through a Swiss ball. It all it, it all goes into what you're pushing against, which makes squat great. Um, but yeah, obviously, if you're if you're 120 kilos, um, 50 kilos of which is fat, then there's maybe no real need for you to be 120 kilos mm. potentially. But then what I say is, so what? If that person wants to be 120 kilos. That can be. Yeah, why not? If, if they want to lose weight or they want to gain weight or whatever, as so long as they're happy they, they're they want to be 120 kilos more than they want to be a, a better powerlifter in terms of wealth. And well, maybe they're a fat fuck. Maybe they enjoy their fat fuck lifestyle. Maybe they just want to lift weights. Well, well that, that's that's fine. But, um, yeah, it's absolutely fine. But, but that's, that's just a fat person that's lifting weights in an inappropriate category. But <laughs> if, if someone has 50 kilos of fat to lose, they are. I, I doubt they'd lose a lot of strength. If losing the first twenty five, no, they'd probably gain strength because they're, <laughs> they're one hundred twenty kilos and they have fifty kilos of uh, fat mass. Then they're probably going to put on a bit of muscle mass. I imagine when they finally start lifting. I would like to know, like, if I were to put on like thirty kilos of weight, make it fifty. Fifty uh, kilos. If, you, of... if you're in the open, you can. Why not? You can take the mick, yeah. <laughs> if you're going to do thirty, then do fifty. It's like what would happen to my lifts, and also like how I, how I would feel. Well, first of all, you're gonna feel terrible. Let's, let's, let's just get that one out of the way. Like just daily, daily life. Yeah, I feel, I feel pretty terrible at like 98, to be honest. Never mind. Yeah. Uh... You're gonna feel catastrophically bad at <laughs> 120 and 120 plus. But what you will feel though is when you squat and when you deadlift and when you bench, you'll feel glorious. And then the, the two will like even out, so you just kind of feel okay. But right. you feel glorious. Two times, three times during the week, and like on our shit through the rest of the week. Right, but it eats out to feel okay. Because you, am I right in thinking that in like 2012 you went to the worlds in the 93s? Yes, I did. So Weighed in the 92.6. Cut you, 600 600 milliliters of water that I didn't need to cut. That was bad. Um, <laughs> so you've you've done literally exactly what I'm talking about. Like you've moved from the 93s to the. To the 120s. Yeah. You're but I, I'm 100% on 93 left I'm, I'm not better about 93. I just, I'm too tall. I can't, my, my structure just doesn't hold 93. Right. I'm like, like at best case scenario, at 93, I can maybe total 700, maybe, um, which is shit. So I, I need to be, I need to be north of that. <laughs> so my, like, if you, it's probably like a way of working out what your optimal looks are going to be, but my looks still got higher as I went heavier, so... That would indicate that so that's the, the that's weight gain isn't not, it? been a good thing for me as a lifter. Here's me trying my best to total 700, and there's Mark just like shit. rug from under <laughs> my feet. <laughs> well, it's all, all relevant what you want to do. Yeah, sure. I want to be good at sports, so yeah. I think that's shit. Yeah. 
I think like the top top probably seven or eight in the country at the moment will be totaling seven hundred ish plus next weekend. So yeah, it needs to be like eight hundred really to have a chance yeah, of doing really, really realistically well. what we're talking about now to be competitive. What I would like to be is I like to be competitive at international level. I don't think I'm ever going to be the standard. I don't think I have the genetic gifts to to be a, an IPF champion. And, but I'd, I'd like to be competitive at the international level, possibly medal at European level. To do that um, at 120, realistically, we're talking of a 880 to 920 total at 105. Realistically, now we're talking 820 to 860. And at 93, you realistically, we're talking like 780 to 800 is kind of the, the standards that you should be striving for is for those goals. So it's, it's relative what, to what you want to do. Like, obviously, 700 kilos and 93 is still obscenely strong, but as the sport grows, and as as lifters get better or better athletes get into the sport, the standards are skyrocketing. Yeah, like it's it's absolutely ridiculous. I I won the one hundred fives in two thousand eleven with a seven twenty two total. Or it wasn't even seven twenty two; it was a seven ten total in the one hundred fives. <laughs> whereas that I'll probably win top ten now. Yeah, at GB. Yeah, yeah, it's it's insane. Well, even in the years that I've done it, like uh, when we twenty fourteen to twenty fifteen. Um, everything just yeah steps like up so there much. was there was tom martin obviously which is just like the, just ruined literally no, ruined no, it no super martin so, yeah <laughs> and then uh then pierre who totaled like 710 and then me at like 630 that's how much of a gap there was and that was first second and third and then everyone else was like below 600 or well, there was a few a few there but now like if you total 620 you'd come you'd come last at, at, the, at the at the national so it is crazy. Like I dread to think what it'll be like in five, six years. Just seven hundred qualifying totals. Yeah, it'll be good to watch as we fail to make the qualifying total. <laughs> <laughs> wow, these guys are real strong. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah, I think we better uh, better start wrapping this up, Mark. It's been pretty good chatting to you. Um, how can we find out more about you and uh, and read more of your stuff? And if you want to read stuff penned by my sausage fingers, you can take yourself over to castironstrength.com. He's not joking about sausage My own personal blog where I keep most of my content. (laughs) If you're more interested in sausage finger typing, more related to powerlifting, check out onlinestrengthcoach.com, where it's got 100% related to powerlifting. And if you want to catch me on YouTube, you can catch me Speed Power Fitness. We've got a whole shitload of content on there, including um, a podcast, which is now up to episode 105. Nice. Uh, and if you want to contact me directly, you can shoot me an email to speedpowerperformance at gmail.com and happily talk about anything, preferably lifting. If you, if you want um, worn or smelly pants, we can do that as well. <laughs> uh, obviously, it incurs a fee. I mean, we're, we're not working for a year. Yeah, of course. Of course. Cool. We, we will put links to all of that in the show notes on the website, propanefitness.com. With the bold link for the, the pants. For the pants. Yeah, and and link to Mark's eBay uh, account as well. Cool. Speak to Big you. Big smelling muscle bear pants. That's <laughs> it. Yeah, we'll speak to you guys next week. Yeah, basically, now my my cowboy down two by three words, but I can't curse. So Mark wanted us to introduce him as um, biggest dick in fitness. Biggest um, dick in fitness. IPF approved. Is that is that evidence based? Well, I can get it ready for you if you want. I've got a mug for reference. I think that would mean that we can't put this on YouTube. <laughs> You're not on naked, that so that's always a good sign. Get naked if you want. If you want. <clears throat> well, it depends if you think it will uh, improve the views. I reckon so. It, it depends <laughs> what you put it out to. If you put it on musclebears.com, you might get a pretty good response. <laughs> Such a muscle bear. Musclebears.com. So, <laughs> so like big hair. By the way, I've got a new website, guys. You got a new website? Yeah. Is it musclebears.com? Walks right into that one. Right. I was reaching for my phone to have a look as well, but is, is oh, musclebears.com? Is musclebears just big bears? Those big musclebears. <laughs> big musclebears. <laughs> All naked and boiled up. But not bears. So I don't know if you're aware, Mark, but we we once got so our YouTube subscribers doubled overnight one day, and it was because somebody had taken a picture of Johnny and posted it on HotTeenMuscleHunks.com, and uh, we suddenly got this influx of messages saying like, "Oh, 
I want to see you guys wrestling each other, oiled up. I love the way that Johnny's chest looks in that tight grey top. And uh, I suspect it was something like 4chan being... Mm, being someone got hold of me. They also yeah. got hold of a deadlift video. Like, and like he's he's clearly on DHT based steroids because yeah. of his like because deadlift it's, because it's is... more than your average deadlift. It's like two two hundred and sixty kilos. Like ah, that's it. Drugs must be drugs.